Hi, we haven't perfected how to open this yet, but we're here with David Scribina, uh talking about tech stuff. How are you doing, Professor? Doing good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, totally. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Um, so to start, um, tell us a little about yourself, your background, you know, your relation to the anti-tech movement. Just just give us a little history. Okay, well, that, that kind of goes way back if you want to go all the way to back. All the um, way back, as far as you want to go. <laughs> right, we'll, we'll, we'll compress like the last 30 years, maybe, I guess. Um, yeah, so like way back, even back in high school, I was like a tech guy, right? So I was like a, the, the math and science guy in high school. And uh, that's pretty much what I was going to study in college. So that was my interest. Didn't really know what else to do. Seemed like a good thing to do. So I... I uh, I, you know, did a lot in high school, uh, advanced classes and so forth, got to U of M, took math and science classes, took physics, took computer programming. Actually, they had, it was kind of interesting, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this before, when I was an incoming freshman at U of M, it, it was just early in the in sort of the programming phase, and they were trying to figure out how many how much programming language skills that the incoming freshmen had. So they had all the freshmen take a programming test to to see if they would pass out of an, an intro programming requirement. So I took it with uh, I don't know a few thousand other incoming freshmen. I had the highest score. So I had the, <laughs> the top score, the top score, the entire U of M. This is the Ann Arbor campus. Entire U of M. I had the highest score. I'm like. Wow, these guys must be stupid or something. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, but uh, so obviously I had a lot of programming skills at the time. That was back when I was a freshman. Um, but but I sort of quickly lost interest in that. I, I I kept up with the mathematics and I kept studying that. I was interested in physics and these other things. Um, but then I sort of got more to the philosophical side. So pretty much was right away. I guess my first year in in Ann Arbor uh, that I ran into Henrik Skolmowski was teaching um, sort of philosophy type classes uh, to, to technical uh, areas, uh, to technical students mostly, not so much to the traditional philosophers, but more, more to other general technical students. And so I got sort of in touch with him and, and started realizing that there were some issues, some questions about, about the nature of technology and what it was what it was doing to society and so forth. This was like all new to me. I had never, never thought of it as anything other than positive uh, until then. And so he kind of introduced me to a lot of his, his critiques. And then through him, I got to find out about Jacques Ellul's book. And uh, at the same time, as I was taking more classes myself, I was kind of getting this sort of uncomfortable feeling like, this is, this is sort of like not really, I mean, it's just sort of like a game at best. I mean, it's kind of a challenging little mm -hmm. game, but it's not really, I mean, like, what is this really doing for? It's not really doing anything for me, you know, I'm, unless you wanted to use it in a, as a, I don't know. I wasn't even sure if I could be a hobby or a job. I didn't know what. Um, anyway, so I, I just kind of stayed in touch with Skolmowski and continued to read some of these critiques and, and talking to some early critics uh, there at U of M. And uh, yeah, really started started getting me to think critically about things for the first time, actually. Um, I don't know, it was just sort of always in the background. Um, didn't really uh, do much about it, just kind of, you know, graduated, got the master's degree in mathematics and was right. always kind of being bothered by things, you know, and um, 
I don't know, just increasingly over time through the 80s and the 90s, got got more sort of aware of the problems, more concerned about things, you know, had my, well, my first child, my daughter was born in 91. And then she was pretty quickly in the school system. And then we were getting confronted with kids, little kids Mm -hmm. dealing with technological issues in school, second grade, third grade, and so forth. And and then it starts to get personal because it's your own kid, right? So you're really worried. And then you start asking questions like, well, why are we actually doing this? Why, why are third graders, you know, learning to program and, to, and keyboarding? You know, I learned I learned how to type when I was 16. And now my daughter's in third grade and she's having to take a keyboarding class. I'm like, better at it than we are. I right. I don't think that's a good idea. Why, why are you actually doing that? And, and then when you ask the question, typically you, you don't get a good answer. You, they're just like, well, I don't know, because that's what we do or because it looks good or because that's what everybody's doing. I, you know, just stupid answers. And then I started doing more detailed research to sort of build my case so that it was clear that I wasn't just some crank parent. You know, I actually had a case that, well, this doesn't do anything for the kids. It's potentially harmful in many ways. It's really expensive. So we're taking money from other things in school and I'm building this case. And then, uh, yeah, well, they were not happy with me at the school, at the school <laughs> district, but, but uh, they weren't used to dealing with, with parents with, with PhDs and <laughs> right. challenging their, their theories. But uh, um, so that was sort of one thing, you know, and then by the mid 90s, the whole Unabomber case uh, was coming to prominence. Um, so that was sort of early 93, 94, 95, when the manifesto came out. And that's sort of, you know, again, it's another layer of, uh, of, uh, of thinking about this, and it becomes sort of like serious. And there's this guy or this group, and they're sending bombs, and there's these critiques. And then it turns out it's Kaczynski, right, six months later, they find out who he is, and he's a U of M guy, and he studied math, and he had the same professors I had at U of M, so (laughs) okay, (laughs) so this is like crazy, Um, so yeah, I mean, it just kind of, it was a continued progression over time for for a long time, I don't, it was no no one thing, I I don't think, just continuously thinking, researching, uh, personal experience, that's sort of, sort of, uh, is what, yeah, that kind of got me to where I am today, I would say. One of the, uh, thank you, yeah, one of the, um, uh, one of the things that we noticed, I think, is uh, a lot of the, there's a lot of people that are kind of new to these ideas in this movement, and I think a lot of, uh, some of it is a consequence of uh, these, like, new documentaries coming out on Netflix about the Unabomber, specifically, there's uh, um, two of them, there was the dramatized one that was called Manhunt Unabomber, I think, and then uh, there was a documentary that you appeared in, um, uh, which was uh, in his own words, I believe it was called. Yeah. Um, could you, uh, do you want to say a little bit about how uh, uh, you got connected with Ted and uh, like what uh, what you're doing with him now and uh, like how how you how you're interacting with them and how that's related to this anti-tech stuff? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, when when the, when the Unabomber Manifesto came out in in 90, 95, late 95. So I was immediately sort of analyzing it, dissecting it, going through it in detail. I know uh, I talked with Skolomowski quite a bit. He and I were both interested in it. We were talking about it. We were going to, at one time, we talked about doing a book to sort of publish, actually publish the, the manifesto, uh, and then maybe some critical commentary or some supplementary discussions on it. So we had talked about that very early on. Uh, that ended up not happening. Um, uh, but I was sort of following the story as close as I could. That was about the time that I moved to Germany. So I was out of the country. There was the trial with Kaczynski and uh, ended up getting his life sentence there in 97, I think it was. Um, 
uh, I didn't really do much more about that because as soon as he was uh, sort of locked away, then the media did their censorship thing and pretty much all discussion stopped about Kaczynski. You heard nothing at all about him uh, at all. Uh, that was about the time I joined U of M Dearborn, started teaching there in the philosophy department. Uh, one of the first things I wanted to do was teach a philosophy of technology class. Tur turned out that, that we had nothing like that. They had never done it anywhere, not at Dearborn, Ann Arbor, nobody had ever done it. So they said, well, basically you can teach it, but you got to create the, cre the class from scratch. You, you got to build it up. So I was like, well, okay, uh, I can do that. Mm -hmm. So so I pulled, started pulling together historical material and, and doing my own sort of research and getting excerpts from the Lule book and so forth that I wanted to use for, for a new class. And then, of course, part of that was the Kaczynski uh, manifesto, which, yeah, it kind of has to be included in some way. You can't really give a critique of technology without addressing it, at least. Right. And, and so in the process of, of doing that, preparing the material for that class, I, I wrote to him directly in, in prison to try to get some basic questions answered because there was no information at all. So I just wanted to know if I actually didn't even know if he was alive at that point. So just to, mm -hmm. just to see, was he alive? Uh, what he was doing, was he doing further writings, any further thoughts on the manifesto and so forth. Um, and uh, so yeah, pr pretty quickly he responded, he uh, gave me a nice long uh, handwritten letter, of course, uh, detailing his situation, talking, answering my questions. Uh, pretty quickly he sent me four or five major essays that he had written that were not published. Uh, so that sort of kicked off the whole process of our, our uh, collaborations, so to speak, uh, letters going back and forth over several years. Uh, well, well over 120 letters, I think, that we re that we sent back and forth. So, so yeah. Um, and then, of course, that culminated in publishing his first book. So that was the the, the book Technological Slavery, um, which uh, came out. Uh, I think the first edition was the one in in Europe in 2000. Nine, I believe it was, and then we had this. the 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 American edition came out in two thousand ten, um, and so that I was sort of featured in that one because, uh, well, they they needed they needed an actual figure that people could 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 contact instead of Kozinski because he was unreachable basically because he was in prison. Right. So so the publisher, uh, a Feral House, um, so they they wanted to make sure that I was. You know, prominent in the book, so he puts my name on the cover, and I wrote the introduction to the book, and so forth. So, so that pretty much established me as a as a kind of a correspondent or a contact with Kaczynski, and that led to uh, sort of the involvement in some of these uh, various interviews, online interviews, podcasts. Um, yeah, so I was filmed for the the Netflix documentary that was uh, came out about a year ago. Mm -hmm. I was filmed. It was a couple of years before that that was actually we filmed it. Um, so I did that one. There's actually a new one. I don't think I even mentioned this to anybody. Um, there's a new documentary in the works. Um, it's from somebody in New York called Pineapple Street Media. Okay. I don't know anything about them, but they're trying to establish, put together a new documentary that's going to focus on the technological issues of the Unabomber story. Nice. Um, I just signed a release the waiver just the other day, sent it back to them. So they're proceeding. I don't know where that, where that will be. It's a, it's a while yet, but uh, they seem to be moving ahead because that was the big thing that was lacking. You know, so 
so far much of the discussion about Kaczynski has been about his background and his history and the bombings. It's about the, the person, and yeah, and, and a lot of it is like, I mean, when Kaczynski, we have the manifesto right here, right? Uh, no, but when he writes, and he always writes, you know, in third person, he always refers to, like, not even himself, he always refers to it as, like, the group, right? The, free, you know, Freedom Club. Right. And it, that's what's always so strange about these documentaries is that they focus on his personal life when he never wanted that, really. Like, he always wanted it to be, like, very much, like, ideologically driven, right? Absolutely, yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, that was the point. The, the point is, is the actual issue that the, the technological uh, system itself, that was the whole point of the discussion. And of course, that's very that's a very difficult issue for media, corporations, the government to deal with because they, they end up losing when you have that debate because they have nothing to say. They're, they're beneficiaries of the system and they have no, no self-interest in reining in or constraining it in any way. So it, it's much easier for them to do ad hominem attacks to attack mm -hmm. Kaczynski and his background and his psychological state and so forth. Uh, it's much easier to do that than actually deal with the issues of technology, because then they can just write him off as sort of a crank or a lunatic or so, something. And, and then they don't have to deal with the actual issues of technology. Right. So most books and most uh, films that have been done on him have focused on his background and his, his physical state and his conflicts and personal issues and so forth. I mean, I like that everybody has. Um, and, and really very minimally on the technology part, which is which has really been a kind of a frustration to me personally, because that's that was my whole interest. That's why I engaged in the letters in the first place. I really didn't care about his background or his whether his mother loved him when he was a kid. I mean, I don't really care about that. I, to me, it's more a question of what's what's going on with technology. What's it like? What's it doing? And how can we respond? Mm -hmm. So, I'm, so I'm, I'm thinking, I'm hoping that some of these newer documentaries, when they've decided that we've done enough of these, you know, the usual kind of, here's the stories and the bombings and the victims and blah, blah, blah. After they've done that for three or four or five times, then they're going to figure out, well, maybe we should actually just talk about the technology. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed and maybe maybe a next one or two will be sub substantive and they'll talk about the technology issues. Yeah, that, that's I, I think that that is what we're hoping to do as well with this show and this uh, group ATC that we're um, working with. We, we want to get on the substantive issues you and know. spread spread the actual issues more and make people aware of the things that he was talking about and why they're important. Um, I want to ask you there. So there are. Uh, a lot of different writers um, in the anti-tech kind of movement, um, like you mentioned Jacques Ellul, there's Lewis Mumford, there's Heidegger, there's all these other guys. Kaczynski is obviously a very important one, um, especially in modern times. What do you think is Kaczynski's like biggest or like, do you think his most notable contribution to like these ideas? Um, because they, he's not the only one talking about them. What do you think he contributed to this? Like if there if there's a poll, like not poll quote, but like a poll idea to take from the manifesto, what is like, what's the big message from it? Like what's the central theme that people should take from Kaczynski's work? Yeah. Um, right. I, so I guess I would say the philosophical approach, he borrows a lot of those ideas pretty heavily from Alul, right? So you, mm -hmm. once you read Alul and you compare to the manifesto, you see lots of parallels there. So, um, I mean, the basic idea that you have a system that's kind of run amok, that, it's, that this idea of technological determinism has taken hold, it's a system which we cannot control, we can't reform it, um, maybe we can't even stop it, uh, maybe, maybe we have limited ways to steer it somehow at this point. Um, so, I mean, those are all very important ideas, and that's kind of the substance of the issue. That, that relates back to Alul, but, but Kaczynski 
Well, he makes one contribution. He, he condenses relatively difficult ideas from Elul into very clear, simple, basic language. I, I guess I would say that's sort of the first contribution mm -hmm. uh, because, because Elul is a typical sort of intellectual book and, and it's, it's not, not many people will be able to plow through it. It's a little bit- uh, It's not for the bit, common I mean, folk. Yeah. A little bit, right. So it's, it's, it's academic and it's typical kind of things, right? We're, works good at a college course, but for the public, it, it doesn't really work. So, so Kaczynski did a good job of taking those ideas and, and condensing them down and putting them in very simple, very black and white kind of terms, drawing in uh, everyday examples that he could think of. Um, so that was sort of one thing that uh, maybe the second major contribution from, from Ted is the, uh, let's say the revolutionary aspect, right? So if you really carry the logic all the way out and you have a system that you can't stop, you can't control and it's de destroying the planet and humanity, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, you have very few options left at that point. And this was sort of Kaczynski's most radical conclusion was you basically have to undermine the system. You have to bring it down, somehow stop it or, or yeah, destroy it or you know, revolt against it in some way because there's no other practical um, option that you can do to avoid uh, terrible disastrous outcomes. So uh, yeah, you get a little bit of the revolutionary, some of the thinkers, Mumford a little bit, sounds a little bit revolutionary. Ivan Illich in times is, uh, is a little bit revolutionary. Um, you know, Elul mentions it in passing, but doesn't really take it seriously. So, right. so these other guys have mentioned it, but but Kaczynski, it's like it's like a focal thing. It's like you got a problem, you can't stop this thing. You gotta you gotta kill it now, basically, uh, be, before it's either maybe completely too late. So, so that's I would say those are the two big contributions from from Kaczynski: taking complex ideas, boiling them down into basic terms, and then having the courage to follow through on the logic. To, to really articulate a, a strong revolutionary thesis. So it's been give or take 25 years now since the manifesto was first published, right? And Kaczynski predicted quite a bit of technological progress in the manifesto. Like when it came to, uh, one thing that always stands out to me is that he predicted like genetically engineering children, like that's becoming more in vogue. But uh, in the 25 years since the manifesto was published, what do you think is the most insidious technological advancement? Yeah. What's well, the thing that worries a, you the most in the last 25 <laughs> years? <laughs> yeah, really. Um, well, right. I mean, because it's interesting, right? Because when he, we, we, we actually don't know. I don't even know when he actually wrote the manifesto. He probably started the process maybe in the late 80s. I would guess it was probably over a several year process. It maybe was done by early 90s, 92, 93, apparently something like this. Um, so you have to think about what was going on at that time frame, right? So at, at that time, there was really no, there, nobody had cell phones. That was maybe the military guys, you know, had these really expensive, big, clunky, you know, mobile phones, but nobody had cell phones. Um, there was an internet, but it was really restricted. It was really, again, like a military or government sort of thing. So nobody was using the internet. There was no, uh, you know, no email, no texting, no social media, none, none of this stuff, right? And, and, and uh, so it's interesting to keep that in, the, in, in mind when you think about when he wrote the manifesto. So, um, so he's thinking about the technologies that he's familiar with and the recent ones at that time. 
of course, bi biotechnologies had been around for a long time, nanotechnologies and so forth. Those had been around for, for quite a while. Uh, but the social media stuff and the cell phones and, and so forth, that, that was sort of on the horizon. Nobody really anticipated it at that time that was going to be such a big deal. Um, so I, I think, I mean, that's a particular application. What he said still applies to those situations. It's still a kind of a runaway system. It still, you know, really takes over your life. It's a kind of a dominating, oppressive sort of thing, maybe in ways even more so than he realized or could have realized when he when he wrote the, the manifesto. Um, certainly on a day-to-day -day basis, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's hard to imagine for personal, for people's personal lives, the time that's spent on, on you know, phones, media, computers, now Zoom calls, especially with the whole pandemic thing, it's, it's just been magnified. Um, so, and, and for children too, especially, this is sort of, again, pretty, pretty tragic in a sense, right? We're pushing all these little young kids, young, young children, school kids onto computers for hours a day uh, just to get, to get schooling. So, so you have those, I guess on the one hand, you have the personal issues where people are increasingly getting sucked in and whether it's, I mean, there's things like internet addiction and there's gaming, you know, addiction things and where people just go, go way overboard and, you know, causes psychological problems. It's, it's a real kind of thing. So at a personal level, I mean, that's, that's kind of one, one thing, um, you know, on, on the political level, you have um, governments and, and media organizations that somehow misuse the power uh, uh, of internet and communications technologies. So you have a whole realm of problems related to surveillance state things where we're, you know, whatever you're saying is being tracked and watched and analyzed. You know, if this is being recorded on Zoom, God only knows who's wa who's watching every Zoom video or every YouTube video. You, yeah, high FBI. Yeah, high <laughs> <Yeah, yeah>, FBI. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you always have to assume the worst, right? Because you don't really know, and there's lots of uh, horror stories about things are being monitored and, and watched and tracked and so forth. Um, so that's that's kind of a, you know, that's another level of, of, of problem. Then maybe at the highest level, you look at environmental problems. Mm -hmm. So you have a sort of a global technological system, which is, which is chewing up the planet. It's it's expanding the human species. It's expanding our footprint. Print. It's uh, increasing energy use. Uh, it's increasing production and consumption in the developing world. Uh, so people are using more resources. They're consuming and producing more. Of course, they would obviously want to. Um, you know, food patterns are shifting more towards wealthier consumptions, luxury products like like meat in particular, which is a uh, horrendously damaging environmentally. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, you have several levels. You know, I would say right the personal level, the sort of the social political level, and then maybe at the global level. Um, yeah, I you know to to ask which of those is worse or which one you know. Is more frightening. It's it's, it's like uh, I don't know. It depends on the day and the news story and what you know what the, what what new little bit of bad information breaks through and you think, oh my god, this is like terrible. And then the next day, all oh, this other thing is even more terrible. So you know, it's like, <laughs> changes from like with with the issue. Like we talk about these different levels of like technological interaction. Like it has this cascade effect where a change in one area like drastically affects the changes in the other areas. So like. The example that I think about, if you think about like global, like uh, like like with genetically engineering animals, like we don't actually know really the extent of the effect of 
uh, on the personal level, but we know that a lot of these effects are negative, like all the antibiotics that they put into meat that people then consume, or like a, a one I'm thinking of is that um, from the personal level to like the global level is that like when people flush like hormone pills down the toilet, like a lot of women will, you know, men too, but you know, they throw away like birth control down the toilet. Well, that gets into the water supply. And then that has this massive effect on local ecosystems where the, where the, these human hormones are just directly affecting the growth of like much different animals and like totally affect the way that the water supply works. And so it's, there's this interesting like cascade effect amongst these levels. That's like, we're not really sure of like, even when you make a change personally, how that's going to affect the, you know, political level or even the regional level. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, right. I mean, these things are hugely complicated, right? I mean, you, you don't, it's, it, that's one of the problems of the technological system. It's so complex and it's so interconnected and things are very dynamic and you have uh, nonlinear feedback loops and things going on that, that you, it's, it's hopeless. You know, nobody knows enough to, to, to know what happens, right? When you create birth control pills and you start flushing down the toilet and the fish and the amphibians start ingesting these things, you know, uh, and then something eats those things, right? And then the whole cascades of your entire ecosystem is like, well, who, who could anticipate all those things? Not, nobody can. It's, it's impossible. So you're, you're dealing with very potent chemicals and technologies and so forth. And, you, and then we're just doing massive experiments. We're just dumping these things out in the, in the world and using them on a massive scale. And then we're like just having to deal with whatever happens. We're like, you know, it's like it's, we're running a a tragic experiment, which, uh, which which is causing you know huge problems, and, and it could be catastrophic in the end. But uh, but we but we, again, it's this idea you can't we can't stop, we can't help ourselves, we can't you know, we can't pull back, we can't uh, can't restrain ourselves. You get this constant pressure where you have to advance. You got to use the new stuff, and you and you stop one problem here, and then you got four new problems over here, and you deal with one of those, and you got five new problems over here, and then you're trying to hammer all these problems all at once, and it's a, it's a losing battle. You'll, you'll, never, you'll never win that one. Right, and, and I, one of the things that uh, we mentioned a lot is the fact that um, in some ways, uh, for a lot of people, it's not even a battle because they don't even have a choice in the matter of whether they can engage with the technology or not. It's, it's this new in, uh, invention comes out and everybody just takes it as the norm. And this is the thing that Ulul uh, warned about and the Kaczynski warned about that it's, uh, you don't have the, uh, even if you can recognize the issues going on, you don't have the option of just like departing from society and like going to the, maybe you can try your best to go to Montana, uh, but uh, the, like they'll track you down, I guess. And uh, eventually- um, Sooner or later, the lumber company shows up, right? Yeah. Like sooner or later, <laughs> they start cutting down the trees. You don't, uh, exactly. you don't have a choice exactly. in that anymore. Um, so like one of the, one of the uh, things that I wanted to talk to you about um, that I don't think I've heard your ideas about that you mentioned briefly in your email that you have uh, somewhat, uh, you've been developing like a hundred year um, plan for to kind of wean us off uh, technology. And I don't know if you've, I don't think I've, you've have heard about this. I haven't heard about it. No. I, could you explain that a little bit for us? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. That's, that was in the, uh, the last chapter of my metaphysics of technology book. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it was something of an action plan, right. Uh, to try to, uh, unravel this mess that we're in. So, um, I think my conclusion was per pretty much in agreement with Kaczynski that you're, you're dealing with a system which is run, run, running amok. It's getting worse all the time. You can't control it. You can't reform it. Maybe we can do, you know, maybe we still have a little window of time where we can sort of take some kind of action. Um, uh, Kaczynski seems to want this dramatic and sort of 
he implies, he doesn't really say, but he, he sort of implies it sort of has to be a sudden catastrophic sort of, you know, blowing up the whole system and, and just sort of collapsing it and then living with whatever comes out. Um, but, but to me, as sort of being the, the rationalist that I am, I, I'm trying to propose a kind of a kind of a rational thinking person's response. And, and uh, in the final chapter of the metaphysics book, I talked about this process that I call creative reconstruction, mm-hmm. which is basically a, a deconstructive uh, process of sort of unwinding the technological system to get it to a, a long-term stable and sustainable state. Which it doesn't have today, right? And 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 to do that relatively uh, intelligently and painlessly, you have to do it slowly. So I, I think it 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 uh, kind of goes without saying. You can't just sort of you know col- collapse the system overnight because that would be sort of total chaos and and uh, yeah, mass death. It might be it'd be like terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think we at least in principle we can still do it slowly and gradually over time. So so it was basically a two step process. Uh, I said, well, what level do you have to be at to be safe and sustainable? And then how do you get there from here, from where we're at today? So two, two-part process. Um, where you have to be at, to me, it was clear you had to be pre-industrial level mm-hmm. because industrial system with fossil fuel uh, generation and, and, uh, and mass you know, factories and ma- mass electrification, I mean, th- those are sort of the root technologies that are causing a lot of the damage. So you had to go at least back prior to the industrial revolution, let's say prior to 1700 equivalent technologies to, to have a chance to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. But even that um, probably is not far enough because it's you can't sort of just, just sort of aim for there because you're, you're right on the threshold of a new industrial revolution. Right. So if, you're, if you sort of have too many enabling technologies, people here and there will start generating you know, new steam engines and new generators and there'll be new power systems and so forth. So it's too precarious to be close to the industrial revolution. So I said, well, look, you have to push it back further in time, ideally, a few hundred more years to get it to a point where um, where it's far enough away from industrial technologies that we do not have this immediate danger of lapsing back into a new industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but not maybe not so far that you have no ability to sustain a real civilization because I you know I. I guess there's a debate. I, to, to me, I'm like, well, I, I still think there's some virtues to Western civilization. We can probably ha- have right. quite quite a bit that counts as Western civilization without having advanced technologies. Um, mm. I mean, you could go way back, right? You could make a case, and I've talked about this before, about going back to uh, ancient Greece. And you could say, well, look, you know, ancient Athens ha- had a really high level of cultural attainment. I mean, they could do mind-boggling things, architecture and... Okay. Um, so Athens, right, um, huge accomplishments with very simple technologies. If you look at what the Athenians were able to do with um, almost really nothing, right? They had just a handful of metals, simple construction techniques, and, and the mind-boggling things. So um, so you could argue that, that really that's all you need. You can have an extremely high level of civilization uh, with very basic technologies and even a little bit more advanced knowledge that they did not have. I mean, just basic biology stuff about you know, germs and disinfectants and sort of how the body works. I mean, really simple things. If, if the Greeks just had a few more little bits of knowledge about how biology worked, I mean, they could have, it would have been a mind-boggling what they could have done, right? right. But anyway, so in my book, so I, I'm picking something sort of in between. I picked the period about, about the year 1200, early in the Renaissance. Um, 
And I said, well, that's a that's a that's a probably a good point to sort of aim for if you if you want to have a plan about the year 1200. Um, so you're still a few hundred years away from an industrial revolution, but you can have obviously more than an Athenian level of culture. You can do what they were able to do in the in in the Renaissance, right? Which was tremendous accomplishments and again in art and architecture. Uh, what they built the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, I think it was 1250 or something. I mean, so. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, obviously, you get tr- tremendous capabilities at that time with that level of technology. And then if you add on top of that basic knowledge, like I said, about germs and microbes and human biology, very simple, basic things that probably any high school kid knows, um, you know, you can have a very high level of, of culture and civilization with very low, relatively low technology, and it would be sustainable and it would be manageable. And something that uh, uh, Kaczynski brings up about this time period, he talks about this a little bit in the manifesto when he talks about freedom, right? Yeah. And uh, and he brings mm-hmm. up that at this time, like you were in like in these feudal societies, you were in like extremely hierarchical, like almost dictatorial level governments, but they were like so technologically, they were so less technologically advanced mm-hmm. that there was no real way to control individual freedoms that relatively speaking, like the government wasn't really able to impinge on personal freedoms because there was just not the there was not a bureaucracy for it, right? Exactly. The, They're right. They did they didn't have the means, the technological means to to control you. So you were relatively independent. What you did was on your own. You know, they had no no communication means, no surveillance means. It was, you know, what somebody overheard in the pub or something. I mean, it was almost like like this, right? It was really very, I mean, this was even prior to the printing press, right? When mm-hmm. when did when did Gutenberg come up with the printing press? It was 14... 1450. So 14, yeah, so, something like so right. So if you go back to 1200, you got no even printing for God's sake. Are you just talking mm-hmm. to people? I mean, you're writing the hand hand writing, obviously. You could you could write for centuries. Uh, but yeah, no, no printed material. So so the surveillance state is like crushed down to almost nothing. It's just it's just a word, word of mouth. So you had a, a lot of individ, ind, independent autonomy, certainly at that level of technology. Um, but but the, sort of the last piece of, of, of my argument was, well, to try to get to something like that from something like where we're at today. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and uh, the model that I proposed in the book was, uh, and, and in some subsequent writings, is to, to give yourself a long period of time to get back to a relatively simple level of technology like that. And I just threw out the figure of 100 years. I mean, it's sort of a nice round figure. And let's say, well, okay, 100 years, a full century to, to sort of unwind ourselves to get back to that basic technology to have a, um, a high level of society at a low sustainable level of technology. And so one way to do that is if we're going back 800 years, but we want to do it in 100 years, then you need to go backwards eight times as fast as you got here. Okay. Okay, it's basic math. So, so I, you know, I just sort of threw out. I said, well, here's an obvious plan. Just, just take the the technologies as they were invented over the last eight centuries, and pull them out of circulation at roughly the same rate, condensed by a factor of eight, right? Mm-hmm. So, so pretty quickly, you know, you could say, well, you know, like uh, we said, like the last 25 years, you got cell phones, social media, internet, email. If you condense that 25 years into three years. So, for example, if you started today, you'd say, look, we're going to give ourselves three years to get rid of those things. Three years. Mm-hmm. So you plan ahead. You know, you, you, you work. A, yeah, three years. OK, we know in three years you're not going to have cell phones. You're not going to have email. You're not going to have Internet, for God's sake. <laughs> it's like a mind blowing concept to people <laughs> probably your age. But 
But to me, it's like, well, I spent my whole life without email. <laughs> I, I don't need, I don't need crap, right? So, um, but but you can see in principle, you could say, well, look, we're gonna, we're, our social institutions are gonna know. Hey, three years from now, we're shutting off the internet. So you guys better plan ahead. Oh, okay, well, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that, and you and you plan to get those, and you and you pull that stuff out of existence, right? And then you go further back. Well, let's go back another, you know, 20, 30 years. Well, you know, certain advanced technology, maybe biotechnologies, or maybe. Uh, certain genetic manipulation things or, you know, advanced chemicals or nanotechnology things, you know, all right, we're going to start phasing those things out. So you got maybe 10 years, right, to phase these things out, which pushes you back to a equivalent of the 1950s or 60s. And then you sort of keep going and you lay out a plan to, to take yourself all the way back and you give 100 years to do it. And in the meantime, society is oriented towards this uh, deconstructive approach rather than this accelerating increasing technological approach, you're oriented towards the, the moving back towards sanity, right? So, and so everybody's thinking that way instead of today where everybody's thinking about what's the newest, you know, next greatest thing that I'm gonna be able to do. You'd be like, no, no, we're gonna think about what next stupid thing are we gonna get rid of, right? Which next toxic <laughs> chemical are we gonna stop using? And then you would be thinking that way rather than the sort of accelerationist way that, that we do today. So mm -hmm. that, that was sort of my, my proposal about a kind of a slow, gradual, rational reconstruction. Mm -hmm. That's what I call it, a reconstructive technique, reconstructing these simpler times in the future to allow yourself to, to survive. That's that that was the basic idea. Um I I listening to that, I'm I'm remembering um and for, correct me if I'm remembering incorrectly, but I think that uh Kaczynski points out one of the reasons that he thinks that uh, a slow, gradual change isn't effective is because he thinks the technological system has this uh, capacity to co-opt efforts against itself. To self-create, basically. Yeah, where like if people start reforming the system, right, that eventually, like no matter, you have, you, like I think he gives the hypothetical where like imagine if like a Green Party took control for 10 years and they started ramping back all this technology. Well, what if they got kicked out of office and then you just get your normal technophile back in and they just re, you know, re-implement all the technology that they had just spent 10 years getting rid of. Like, how do you avoid, how do you avoid the problem of the system undoing your attempts at changing it? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, right. So that, that's a problem. And, and probably today, it's probably not possible because the system is too robust and it would, it would work around, it would push you aside, it would squeeze you out or it would replace you with somebody else. That, that was one of Kaczynski's points. Um, so today, it's it's more. I think it's more of a task of laying out the concept and making the case, mm -hmm. and then and then sort of watching how things evolve, right? Because one of the premises is that is that things are going to get worse, yeah. and they're probably going to get worse faster, and maybe like really fast, maybe really bad, really fast. We we don't really know, right? And and probably it will take you know a, a one or two or three major crises. Maybe our pandemic is first major crisis. Yeah. Um, but but you can expect more of these sort of coming out of the blue. Gee, you know, I never thought about that sort of thing, right? And then and then, as 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 global society gets hammered with one, two, three, four major crises, and if you can make that connection that these are from advanced technologies, mm -hmm. that then maybe then maybe the, the system has softened up a little bit, where it's maybe maybe you can start to talk meaningfully about these kind of things, and then you could actually have a chance to to get. To, to do something to get people to take them seriously i mean there's you know there's there's lots of small little steps you could make in those kind of directions 
you don't have to go whole hog. You don't have to sort of blow up the whole system. You right. can say, well, look, you know, maybe we should, maybe we should get, you know, the 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 elementary school kids. Maybe we should get them completely off the internet. So, you, so you get get that little piece, and then this little piece, and you take that little piece, and you know, maybe we need to, you know, I don't know, shut. Maybe the internet doesn't need to run twenty four seven. Maybe it just needs to run business. Hour. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I mean, oh, there's no, little no. little little <laughs> ways you could you could you could chip away at this at the system when it was becoming obvious that. You know, we're, if we face big problems, we have other major disasters, and we can see maybe more coming on the horizon. And then I think maybe, maybe people will start to take them seriously. And like even like to even like give an example is like an easy thing to implement. And I know that New York does this occasionally, where they do like they do like biweekly power outages, like one hour a week. <laughs> no electricity, right? And then people like will realize like over this time, like, oh, we're fine. Like, like whatever, oh, come on, let's make it two, let's make it three, right? No, it's just, it just seems like you have to like introduce these things piecemeal as you were saying. But um, so when, when I, when in this theory where you go back this 800 years, the one big issue I see in this is the population, right? Is that in that 800 years, there is a massive increase in human population and implicatively you kind of have to undo that to get to a sustainable level. So how Absolutely. do you do that? Yeah, well, exactly right. It's not just the technology. It's, it's the whole, the whole mass of humanity that depends on that technology. Um, I don't, I don't have the numbers offhand, but it was, I think it was about 500 million or something was the global population. If you look in the year 1200, so about half a billion today, we're pushing 8 billion. Mm -hmm. Um, and then those, the reason that those people exist is because of advanced technology, right? You have food technology, you have medical technologies, you have uh, energy technologies, and that's what allows the human organism to expand to this, to this multi-billion level status that it has today. So yeah, you have to you have to tack it on the technological level and on the on the demographic level as well. Basically, you're you're gonna you're gonna have to roll back the global population in some kind of rational manner. Uh, again, slowly and gradually over time. And that, that's another reason to give ourselves 100 years, right? Um, I did the math one time a while back. And if you wanted to get from 8 billion down to half a billion, you need to reduce globally at about 2.5% per year. So it's 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 not impossible. I mean, it's not like 20% a year. I mean, it's, it's a relatively small, a couple of percent a year. And at first, it has very little effect, but of course, it builds up over time, right? Um, and then you you can, if you had a plan, if every nation had a plan, you could sort of get ideally some kind of global agreement. Hey, look, we got to roll back our collective populations. We're going to each tackle and get this two percent figure down and and try to drive it down. And it's got to be all the usual stuff, right? Family planning and financial incentives and whatever it's going to, you know, empowering women and all these things that that we know that will help bring the fertility rates down. But there needs to be a, a corresponding plan on the demographic level uh, to bring the population down because you can't have as many people, eight billion people, with eight hundred year old technology, right? It just it just won't it just won't work. So because um, like the issue when, when you bring this up is that like a lot of modern like post industrial like Japan for example, they're basically post industrial, like they're they're super electronized, electronicized, right? Yeah. And one of the issues they're having and like other nations like this, like Russia's having the same problem where like they have a very large elderly population. Like their <laughs> population is like, I think Japan's growth rate is actually a negative growth rate now, but like their issue is, is that a huge amount of their population, like 40% of it is age 60 plus. Right. And, and there's this like, 
there's just there's this big issue when you have this energy technology and this medical technology people are living oh like way past natural lifespans that they would have died at unless so so like all these people that get like triple heart bypasses that would have died in their mid-50s are living till 85 and I'm not really asking a question. I guess I'm just posing problems, right? Like, how do we how do we solve the elderly problem then? Like, like I mean, in other words, like, what do, what do we do with with all of these elderly people that that can't operate outside of the technological system? Well, that, I wanted to ask too because um, yeah. I when we uh, um, Brian and I uh, thankfully got to go on a study broad trip with you a few years ago in the Virgin Islands where we studied environmental ethics, and I remember one of the things that we talked about during one of the lectures is some uh, um, suggest, and I think that you talked about this in your regular environmental ethics class too, is some of the tips that you have uh, for how to actually incentivize people uh, towards lowering the population. Uh, um, things like uh, taking 1% of the budget away from the military budget and giving people an incentive to have uh, less kids or to uh, go to other countries to like minimize the amount of resources that we're taking in this country. Um, do you want to mention some of those incentives that you were thinking about too? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so there's a couple of related issues, but um, yeah, if, if you roll back the technology, that's keeping a lot of people alive, right? It's advanced medical technologies. It's it's keeping uh, not just the old people, it's, it's the young, right? So infants who have severe medical problems, which would have died for all of humanity, uh, all of history, uh, now, now almost every baby can survive with the adequate uh, medical uh, intervention, right? With advanced technology. So if you roll back those technologies, it, it, it cuts you on both ends, right? The people will not live as long because you don't have those advanced uh, surgical techniques and chemical techniques. So the old people will sort of die younger. And unfortunately, you will, you will inevitably have a higher infant mortality rate because there's no way to keep every infant alive um, <clears throat> without those advanced technologies. Um, so, I mean, that's that's one of the hard questions that we that we have to deal with, right? And and it sounds sort of cruel, you know, like we're going to bump off grandma and grandpa, and now you get to lose every third kid because your because your kid can't survive. But but you know, I I, I guess you got you have to weigh that against uh, against the global catastrophe, right? So so yeah, it's it's not good that grandma grandma's going to die at eighty rather than ninety, and then I'm going to lose one or out of third or every fourth kid. Uh, on the other hand, I don't want to lose the whole planet. I don't want to lose all of humanity. So it's you, you like always have to keep that you control, like you slowly control the population decline or a catastrophe. Like the choice is catastrophe or control it. And like, yeah. there's no, there's no third here. Like there's no alternative between <laughs> those two. It's one way or another, the population is going to drop. Well, and that, that's we have right. To do it humanely or it's going to blow up in our face. And there's no, there's no gap between those two things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, yeah. I mean, there's many serious thinkers who've said, you know, by the end of this century, by the year 2100, we're going to have way less people and we're going to have either way less people because there's been horrendous catastrophe mm -hmm. or we took, we took the situation under control and we sort of rationally figured out we hate, we have to live with less people. So, so, I mean, anytime they bring up, bring up sort of the, the cruelty thing with the old people or with the infants, and you have to say, well, yeah, it's, it's uh, unfortunate, but, but, but we're in an unfortunate situation and we're faced with much worse outcomes, right? Um, so you, so you, on the one hand, you have to deal with that one. On the other hand, you have to deal, uh, Griffin, that you mentioned, the pragmatic issues of how you deal with specific uh, population groups right now. Um, environmentally, it relates to the, to the ecological footprint. 
So it turns out that the high consuming countries like the US, we are number one of the large countries. Um, so every person who comes into this country or is born in this country is almost automatically a high consumer because the footprint per average American is, is huge. It's uh, about 20 acres a person, I think at this point. So it's, it's extremely high. So it's important that we, that we don't have more Americans in the future because every American has this huge, gigantic, you know, crushing footprint on the planet. So, I mean, there's some obvious consequences uh, to this. First of all, you don't let anybody else come in. You, you just have to stop immigration because everybody who immigrates becomes a high consumer. Doesn't matter where they came from. Maybe they don't, you know, maybe they're not suddenly living like, uh, you know, the wealthy, but they went from really low to sort of moderately low. They went from moderately low to middle class or middle class to upper class. That's why they come here. They come here because they want to increase their footprint. That's why the people are coming here. It's not because they love love uh, living in uh, Idaho. They they want to they want to have a higher footprint. I mean, that's really what they want. And and we have to say, no, I'm sorry, that's not allowed, right? For the sake of the planet, you you can't come in here. So you have to stop the, all the immigration. You have to, in fact, turn it around. You've got to say, hey, we want to sort of encourage people to leave because because they're way too high consumers here. So. So I've talked about incentives to get people to, to leave, right? Even the same number of people who are here, if you could get them to move to a low consuming country, their footprint would automatically decrease. Uh, that's just, just how it works, right? So if you can encourage people, incentivize them uh, or tax them or whatever you want to do to get them to leave, then, then that's another option. That's another tool in the toolbox to try to, to try to tackle our specific population problem. That doesn't help the global situation if you just move people, but it does help the environmental situation because you know, uh, 300 million Americans is way worse than 300 million uh, you know, Mexicans or uh, South, South Americans. So, mm -hmm. so we'd rather have these people live somewhere else than here, and then we'll tackle our technology problems here to bring that down. And, and then we have, a, then we, that's a kind of a plan, right? There's different levels that we could make progress there for sure. Right. I, I think that um, I think that what you were saying earlier about um, how there are pe people might be kind of uh, enlightened on their own through these like brief little catastrophes or like pandemics or things, and and this coronavirus pandemic could very well be the first one of those. And I think that you're right about that because we we think about um, when we've been talking about the pandemic and how it affects people. Um, there's kind of like two sides of it where it seems where there's definitely part of it where uh, the system has taken advantage of what's going on and introduced techno more technology into people's lives, made it much more uh, required in order to like have a job now. Like, like for, <laughs> the one to think of is like this, like you, you, you see this like big social pushback against the vaccines, right? For the, for COVID virus. And uh, what was interesting about that is you see this huge pushback that wasn't there before when it came to vaccines. Like before COVID, like the, the anti-vaccination movement was like, an extremely fringe, like celebrity driven. We don't want our kids to have, we, we don't want the polio vaccine anymore, right? But now like with COVID, it's like, I'm seeing like people that like, I saw five years ago making fun of Jenny McCarthy, right? For for being anti-vax or like, yeah, I'm not getting the vaccine ever. Like, I'm, I don't trust, like you see, there's this yeah. large mistrust of these like, of these biotech companies that are like, this virus just came out three months later, we got a vaccine for you, right? <laughs> and like, you just see this, like, there's this like, this social discontent now, like, because of like, I think it's because of like, uh, and we go back to like, to the original topic where it's like on the personal level of technology, like, COVID has like restricted people's like 
non-technological social interaction. So they're getting more psychologically damaged from like the the like the governmental mandates about COVID. And now you see that there's a lot of people that are just refusing to be vaccinated across the board because they're just like, we can't trust, you know, these big pharma companies anymore. Yeah. So I, I'm hoping that like that's that's like the other side. It's like it's it, like it's definitely uh uh given the technological system uh, a, a bit of an advantage in some respect, but I think in another respect, it's kind of opened people's eyes a little bit. They're starting to see how uh, intensely ingrained technology is in their lives and how it affects them. And I think there are a lot of people, um, you know, not everyone, but I think there's a decent group of people that are trying to resist it now as a consequence. And maybe they're resisting in the form of resisting the vaccine or not trusting uh, th those uh, medical corporations as much. Um, but it might, I think it's also just a general sense of people, you know, were stuck inside for two weeks and they realized the value of going outside and uh, uh, experiencing the natural world. Um, uh, I, I guess, I don't know, do, do, you, do you share some of the sentiment or do you have other worries about the coronavirus? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, you're right, because there's multiple things going on here for, for sure, right? You, you have the general complexity of the whole system, the medical system, the political system. Uh, there's so much complexity there. I mean, this is this is why you get crazy theories and you get, you know, people coming up with bizarre, you know, counter views and whatever, right, from different sides, because it's simply so complicated that things could be going on and probably are going on, which you cannot know and you'll never know. So so and we know there's examples where, you know, people have been lied to by the media and corporations and governments. I mean, it's sort of a routine business of what of what they will tell you. More often these days, it's not actual lies. It's probably lies of omission, right? They don't tell you things that right. they don't want you to know, but it's still a lie. It's still a deception. So that that goes on all the time. I mean, the media, it, it makes me barf just to watch the evening news because I, I know what they're not telling you and it, it drives me crazy, right? So um, so people are right not to trust the, the corporations and the medical institutions, right? And the, and the government uh, either side is really sort of not really trustworthy. So, so you, you you can't deal with that. On the other hand, you know, you, I mean, it's good that people realize sort of the benefits of personal interaction and fresh air. I mean, that's that's a sort of a good little, you know, sort of a sort of a crack over the head to get people to realize kind of what they were what they were losing. But but the other thing is, you know, to, to tell people like things like, well, if it if it's a real pandemic, assuming it is. You know, why do you have pandemics in the first place? And it's because yeah. two, two things, you got too many people on the planet and they're interacting too rapidly through mass transportation. So, so you have highly dense areas on the planet, whether it's a, in Wuhan or wherever it is, uh, massively interacting populations, which, which interact very quickly, which travel like mad through uh, airplanes and you know trains and ships and so forth, air, uh, trains. Um, so you have massive high-speed global travel amongst an overcrowded planet that I mean that's why you have pandemics that's the the first pandemic didn't hit until the black plague this was in Europe in about the 13 what 1300s 1200s um, yeah yeah yeah, right so, after the so, conquests. yeah so right right in that time um but there was that was actually an over there was an overcrowded situation you had population was rising in Europe they were subject to to Un unnatural to today it seems like slow but ships bringing disease in from the east which in the past wouldn't have happened when you're taught well, moving at walking speed, right? It's very hard for diseases to travel at walking speed. When you have ships there, they can go faster. When you have trains and airplanes and they go overnight around the whole planet. So, 
So the root cause of why you have a pandemic is too many people and they're moving around too much, too fast. And, and those are the root causes. If you want to get rid of pandemics, you, you have less people and you slow them down so they don't move so fast, which means you have to dial back your global transportation system, which means less people flying, less people going on high-speed trains, less people driving around, and you restrict movement back to more of a normal, natural, evolutionary pattern of human movement. And that's what will, that's what will cut into your pandemics. But as far as I know, nobody, nobody has ever mentioned those things. They never want to talk about that. Too many people on the planet, you know, too much high-speed transportation. No, they never, ever will talk about that. But those are the root causes of why you have pandemics. Until you get rid of those root causes, you can expect the next pandemic is probably coming right around the corner. And it's probably going to be worse. So, you know, that's that's how it goes. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um so yeah, well, uh, we're we're coming up we're coming up on uh, the end of the hour here. Um, is there anything uh, that you want to plug? Some recent work that you're working on, or anything that you want to mention at the end here? Or maybe, maybe oh, no. <laughs> something for yeah, a ticker just, tape at the bottom here. Yeah, yeah. a little ticker tape, right? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, just encourage people to to sort of do the reading so that you become knowledgeable about things, right? So there's there's my book, Metaphysics of Technology. There's my anthology, Confronting Technology. Uh, which is both, both those are available for purchase. There's my my personal website, davidscribina.com, right? So uh, unfortunately, we have to have these things. I don't really like having the idea of having my own website, but you know, yeah. when you're forced to communicate with people, uh, this is what we have to do, right? So we have to maintain these things and publish the books and do our little podcasts and video things because that's the only way, way to re- reach people. Um, so um, so yeah, I mean, if, there, if there's a parting message, just uh, just you know, get educated so you can talk knowledgeably and intelligent, intelligently about these issues, and you don't just sort of off the top of your head say, "Well, I just don't like these things," or "It doesn't make me feel good." Okay, I mean that's nice, but you want to sort of be a knowledgeable and well-informed critic, and then what you say will have more weight in the social dis- discourse. So maybe yeah. that's my last message. Exactly. That that's a perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, thank th- thank you for coming on, and uh, you know. Have a good day. We'll uh, hope hope to see you again on here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right, cool. Have a good one, Professor.